Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Doug DeVries with iCare Associates of Nevada, and I'm joined today uh, Dr. Curtis Manning, uh, also of iCare Associates of Nevada. Uh, Dr. Manning is an ophthalmologist, and I'm an optometrist. And today we're going to discuss conjunctival cholasis and the clinical management of conjunctival cholasis and uh, why we actually refer to this as mechanical dry eye. So as we, we take a look at such a common entity that we see every day within uh, our practices is that, that tissue coming above the, uh, the rim of the lid margin. And uh, we've over the years just really learned to kind of ignore that, that we really didn't think that there was a whole lot of uh, uh, treatment that we could do. Well, in the recent years, and uh, Dr. Manning has become uh, quite adept at a, uh, a surgery to restore the uh, reservoir uh, with a uh, procedure uh, utilizing amniotic membrane. So uh, Dr. Manny, why don't you tell us a little bit about that, uh, the procedure and why we really refer to it uh, as a mechanical dry eye. Uh, yes, so regarding the, the surgery, there are several options available and it seems like the ophthalmology community is all over the map. You hear about uh, people doing cautery at the slit lamp, argon laser. There's kind of just a quick resection, a snip, or a tissue glue. Uh, the procedure we've adopted is referred to as tear reservoir restoration, or I like to call it fornix reconstruction, because it better um, defines what you're doing. You're not just trying to remove redundant cons that conjunctivity you can see visible on the lid margin, but you're trying to restore normal anatomy. And I use that term a lot when I'm talking to patients too, that we're restoring, we're restoring your anatomy the way it was to, you know, deepen your tear reservoir, your tear lake and help better manage your dry eye. Well, let's talk about a common misnomer also, which is the whole idea that it's a disease of the conjunctival tissue. And I was just absolutely amazed in sitting through the first procedure I did uh, that you clearly you can see the mechanical aspect of why it's obliterating the, the tear reservoir and how somebody does not get tear exchange and how they don't take advantage of dry eye medications or glaucoma medications like they should because there's no source uh, of really storing that. So we've called it conjunctival cholasis because we see the conge, uh, but it actually is not a disease of the conge. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, and, that, and that's why just it makes no sense just to respect conjunctiva because if anything, you're going to fur further foreshorten the fornix and further um, deplete their reservoir, their tear lake. And I think uh, restoring the fornix, um, removing the degenerative tenons capsule, sometimes prolapsing fat, deepening the fornix makes much more anatomic sense and, uh, yeah, than just addressing the visible part of the conjunctiva that gets your attention. Yeah, that's what, what really struck me the first time I saw one of the procedures is that tenons was now a fibrovascular gel instead of a structure and that it would no longer support and hold the conjunctival tissue. And that's why the conj would tend to bellow and raise up and obstruct the reservoir. Uh, so I really do think it, it, it's one of the misnomers that we have that it's a disease of the conj. It really isn't. It's a it's a disease and an inflammation of uh, of Tenon's capsule, and, uh, and and we see. And so, you know, when we're treating dry eye in general, we'll typically start. We see this so often on patients. Uh, 
but it isn't the first go-to that we look at. We look at conventional treatment and see how patients respond to conventional dry eye treatment. Now, uh, early on, the way we have our, our clinic at Eye Care Associates subdivided, uh, you'll see a lot of the patients refer them to the dry eye clinic, uh, where then I'll take over and start working with those patients. But right away, we identify that that patient does have a mechanical aspect to their dry eye that we may have to address. So I bring it up in the very beginning. That this is something that we may need to uh, to deal with. But first, we're going to see how does that patient respond uh, to typical treatment. And at that point, what we're looking for is the consistency uh, of the conjunctival chalasins as well, how that patient responds to to, to normal treatment. And when they're not responding and don't seem to really be taking advantage of the medication because they have no reservoir, then, uh, you know, through the training, then that's when we start moving toward that frank discussion with the patient about this mechanical dry eye uh, that we're seeing and what kind of effect it can have. Uh, and I think it's really important when we're when we're doing that is to really, uh, uh, Dr. Manning and I are on exactly the same page when we're evaluating patients. By the time uh, I've tried uh, typical treatment and your normal treatment for dry eye with the anti-inflammatory therapy, with different supplements, um, with all the different uh, mechanisms we have and we're not getting a response, uh, by the time we then set up a consult where uh, Dr. Manning will see the patient, uh, we've established what that criteria is of what the patient has tried, uh, how much conjunctival cholesis it is, what the uh, the mind state of the patient is, so that when, because the last thing you want to do is waste your surgeon's time, uh, when Dr. Manning sees the patient, uh, we're on a, wouldn't you say we're on a pretty high hit rate that we're on the same page as far as it's now time to look at addressing mechanical dry eye with surgery? Yeah, Absolutely. And I think, Doug, it's great that you bring that up early on in the discussion, that there's a mechanical aspect that may need attention. And I've, I've, I found in the clinic there's, there's conjunctival cholesis is so prevalent, and it's probably seen in almost all of our elderly patients to some degree. And the big question that we've struggled with is who's going to benefit from this surgical management of conjunctival cholesis? And I've kind of broken it down to three groups. There's a large group of those that have it and it doesn't bother them doesn't doesn't seem to cause any clinical problems they're asymptomatic and those we just leave alone the ones we're going to be focusing on of course the ones that are symptomatic and um in that group there's there's one uh, i guess a second group that'll tell you the diagnosis if you listen they'll come in pointing to this gelatinous you know they said it looks like there's fluid in their eye or it's glistening it hurts when they blink or they have a foreign body sensation, this kind of redness and irritation. And they'll pretty much tell you they have symptomatic conjunctival cholesis. And that's that's an easy group to, to jump on. And then this, the um, last group is one that I think um, has conjunctival cholesis, and they also have um, ocular surface disease, dry eye disease that's not responding to the typical treatment, the lubricants, the steroids, the um, immunomodulation therapy that we try and that's where you know if you bring it up early in the discussion it makes it much easier to go to go into a surgical procedure uh, once you've already identified that they are not responding to treatment and they have this mechanical aspect to their dry eye disease 
Because the uh, the symptoms really are uh, are very similar to that of dry, and that's what becomes the difficulty is really differentiating that and find out how much of a problem is it, and that that really reveals itself uh, during that, as you said, that conventional treatment of that. And some of the methods I use in diagnosing this is, uh, you know, clearly you'll see it, you'll see it that that gelatinous above the uh, above the lid margin, the lower lid margin. Uh, and I'll ask patients, do you ever see that it, uh, when you look in the mirror, like you have a little bit of a tear wedge uh, on the on the eye, that there's always a tear there? And they'll say, uh, yes, I do see that. Well, actually, that is, uh, uh, that's tissue. That's not a tear. And that's actually blocking your tear reservoir. And one of the tests that I'll do on that is I'll put a drop of preparacaine or tetracaine in. Then I'll take a little surgical Wexel and I'll drag that tissue up. And, and it's not unusual for that tissue to drag clear up to mid-pupil at that point. And, uh, you know, as which is always a patient or somebody in the room with a patient finds it absolutely amazing to see that that tissue will stretch that far. And then, yeah. then we, we go on, since we're sort of treating conventionally, to find out that if you're not responding the way we'd like you to, it could perhaps be uh, that it, uh, this mechanical aspect is having a much greater effect on you uh, and not allowing the medications to have their effect. Yeah, and really, and that's the group that's motivated. I mean, the, the, the patients that either don't have much symptoms or are controlled with conventional therapy aren't going to be motivated to have a procedure done. But but that group that you just identified that aren't responding well, they're still symptomatic, they're, by that point, and by the time you bring me over to the exam and we visit together, they're usually motivated to do something more. It's nice to show, um, I guess, a conjunctival distraction test that you just described. Also, if you have um, pictures in your office, it's nice because it's it's hard to explain um, sometimes what, what it is there that you're addressing. And I think... Um, if, if you, uh, you know, if you have, develop a good language to explain to them what it is you're treating, they're going to be better at understanding and agreeing to therapy, don't you find? Yeah, and, and what's interesting from that point, it becomes everything becomes in dialogue and the language that we use. And that's something where we're in such concert in terms of what we're talking to about patients. Uh, and really, at that point, we t say this mechanical procedure that can be done uh, quite easily in an outpatient setting uh, is a is a simple procedure. Uh, that we do one eye at a time it, uh, to restore the normal anatomy of your eye. Uh, and, and I think that, you know, when I've repeated that and then Dr. Manning comes in and he repeats really similar, uh, similar descriptive uh, and narrative uh, that it's very comforting to the patient. And that's what we find is that patients will then often say, okay, well, uh, you know, I'd like to try that. And we just say, we're going to do one eye at a time. Uh, we know that it's not going to get any worse. What we're looking for is to see how much better it gets with this surgical intervention. Yeah, so I, I think terminology is key as you're talking to patients. And I, I love the phrase restoring normal anatomy because that's that's really what we're doing. And the patients like hearing that term restore and normal. And um, they come to us with a gen degenerative condition we tell them there's loose tissue that's um, obstructing your tear lake, that's potentially even causing tearing by blocking your uh, tear out egress or tear outflow from the eye, and that by doing this simple procedure, we're going to restore your normal anatomy. That's going to allow your tears to function better. It's going to allow the medication we're using to work better. 
when you have a normal anatomy or normal tear reservoir. And, you know, I, th I think also that, you know, as we went through, uh, you know, having the training uh, through biotissue, I think was real critical in terms of uh, actually performing the procedure. Uh, I mean, you go through a very uh, detailed um, uh, surgical procedure that is the same every time. And I think that's really made a difference in the outcomes and the way the patients view the success and what they feel uh, afterwards. And uh, the uh, that I think that training is, is real important, that it's not just cutting conge and gluing conge, uh, that it's actually removing a small amount of conjunctival tissue and removing that fibrovascular gel and then replacing it with uh, amniotic tissue. Yes, and I think um, discussing expectations at that time is critical to make sure that they understand, and they usually do at this point, that they have a chronic ocular surface condition with no simple fix. There's not just a, a simple medicine or surgery we can do to, to remedy that, but there's, this is an important aspect of their treatment. And I tell them, I say, it doesn't work for everybody. This is going to treat one aspect of your ocular surface disease, about two-thirds of my patients um, after a, a month or two will notice the difference and want their second eye done, and then we proceed with the second eye. It's nice, too, in, in the sense that um, the first rule of medicine, they say, is do no harm. And at the very worst, I think, you do the procedure and they don't see a big benefit. You as a clinician don't see the benefit you're hoping for. They don't feel the benefit, and but you're not. I've never seen a complication from this, and I've never seen where we've made the condition worse. Have you, Doug? No, we haven't, and that's the thing is, you know, it's a overwhelmingly number of, a high number of patients who do feel a benefit uh, of having the procedure, uh, but we haven't had anybody that says, you know, I, I just don't feel uh, as good as I did prior to going into the surgery. And, and really, it makes sense when you explain to the patient that a lot of times they put this drug into their eye and it immediately, they put their, their drugs in the eye and it immediately comes out of the eye. And you all, we also identify those patients that say, as soon as you get out in the wind and uh, you get a little bit of tearing, it runs down your cheek. And they all say, yes, it does. And they find it very frustrating. And we've used that conventional treatment. And now we're moving on for a surgical intervention. I would say that patients actually sent, I sent some relief in the patient uh, at that particular time because they know there's another option uh, that we can try because we've tried a lot of the uh, of, of the typical medications and the typical therapy. So I would say that a lot of these patients are really relieved when they hear that there is a surgical option. Yes. I will, anecdotally there, I think I've shared this before with you, Doug. There was a patient of mine that was really unhappy in the early post-operative period. In fact, she was miserable, and she let me know she was miserable, and she came in several for several exams, and I was reassuring that everything looked well, and it was healing well, and she was regretting she ever did anything um, to address this, and she was really unhappy with me. And so I just kind of let things pass, kept her on the post-operative regimen. Um, and then about on her one-month exam or four- to six-week exam, she came back, and she said, I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'd like to have my second eye done. So there, there, there are those patients that don't respond immediately. Well, they, they need some time and some hand-holding, but um, most patients, I think, at the very least, you've done no harm. Most of the time, I think you've benefited them by removing the mechanical aspect of their dry eye and restoring their tear weight. 
Yeah, you've not only told me about that patient, but then subsequently I saw that patient and she said the same thing. She said it just took a while and then it really made a difference. And yeah. so she elected. I didn't think I'd be asking to have the second eye done, but she did. And the second eye was the same way in terms of the way she responded and how she did uh, after that. So uh, it really is an option that, you know, when we when we take a look at what can we do uh, for patients with dry and at what point do you get frustrated and there's not other treatment. And I think it, this has to be identified fairly early in the, uh, in the, uh, in the treatment to say this could be something that happens because it also lets the patient know that everybody doesn't respond the same way with conventional treatment, that we might have to look at a mechanical intervention and a restoration of that reservoir to really get uh, the medications to be more effectively and to get them to stay on the surface and let them get the benefit uh, of those medications. And, and as we looked at the procedure, uh, of course, within our practice, we have our own ambulatory surgery center. And as the administrator of that as well, I, I take a look from the standpoint of, you know, does it make sense to do some of these procedures? And I think some of the, in the past, some of the procedures that were done at the slit lamp or were done in an outpatient setting where it was just snipped and glued, uh, they didn't make economic sense. And of course, they didn't give the kind of results that this did as well. Uh, but when we take a look at what this has, it really is a, a reimbursement very similar to both the facility as well as the surgeon of doing two cataracts at the same time. So. Uh, it can make sense for the practice. It certainly makes sense for the uh, for the patients and being able to address a problem that we're not getting traction with normal normal therapy. And we've really found it a nice addition to to really give the patient another option that we can do a little bit more. Yeah, I think you saying the term amniotic tissue doesn't disturb them the way I, I thought it would. I think they associate that with some of the things they hear about limbal stem cells or just regenerative tissue. And in my experience with um, cryopreserved amniotic tissue has been great. Even before I started doing conjunctivocalasis surgery, I was using it for trigium surgery, which I do a fairly high volume of. And those eyes look great from the from the very beginning. They And they feel better. Patients really feel well. And we see that with our conjunctivocalasis too. They, they look quite quiet and comfortable, you know, even from the first first day or the first week. Doug, can you um, give us your experience using amniotic tissue? I know with, in your dry clinic with treating severe dry eye disease and neurotrophic keratitis, you've had quite extensive experience with amniotic tissue, particularly Prochera. Yeah, I'm happy to uh, to give you some of that information and my experience on amniotic tissue. Uh, and, and you know, one of the first thing that comes up when we talk about amniotic tissue is patients. Sometimes uh, you'd expect them to have more questions, but when I introduce amniotic tissue to a patient, I will tell them we're going to use a cryopreserved amniotic tissue that contains a bio biologic that will promote the active healing process uh, within their eye, and that it's. Uh, amniotic tissue, placental tissue that's been harvested from healthy moms having C-sections. And at that particular point, the patient just says, okay. You would expect more dialogue, but the patient says, okay. Because as a matter of fact, this is what we're going to do. This is the next step. And as a surgeon, I think that tissue does is easy, easy, easy to use. It uh, peels off nice. It's resilient. I think it does maintain some of the structural and um, biological properties you want in a tissue graft, and we've seen that, you know, in the outpatient clinic, we see it in the OR, 
we see it with our post-operative patients that these eyes look look better quicker they heal well well clearly uh the the cryopreserved amniotic tissue has that anti-inflammatory aspect of it and i think that's why it seems to work so well clinically for me and surgically for you uh is it just calms that inflammation promotes that active uh, healing process with the the active the heavy chain hyaluronic acid pentraxin 3 biologic which is a biologic that we're not born with this is a biologic that the last time we see that, unless we're introduced to this cryopreserved tissue, was the day we were born, as the last time we really see. So I think the introduction of, of the biologic tissue and how much it's been used in orthopedics, in burn care, in uh, wound care, uh, really speaks for itself in terms of being able to take advantage of that in an ocular setting and using it clinically when I'm treating dry and you using it surgically. I agree. I think um, importantly, as you mentioned, Doug, early on, just bring up that aspect of their dry management, that they have this condition, this mechanical condition, see how they do, how they respond. It's very rare we just jump right to the operating room unless, like I, like I said, they come in pointing to the condition and they're symptomatic from it. But uh, bring it up early, and if they don't respond clinically to conventional dry treatment, I think that's a perfect next step. There's, uh, those with conjunctival places to address that mechanical aspect of their dry eye disease. Yeah, and I'd say, I mean, you know, obviously we co-manage these patients uh, very well back uh, back and forth. And, you know, now what we're doing is looking at expanding that. And the key is going to be in the co-management of these patients is really just like we've worked together to, to know what that criteria is, what uh, is necessary to make that individual a candidate. Uh, and we have our own criteria, and I think that needs to be set uh, surgeon to surgeon. And uh, it's tremendous practice building opportunity because optometrists all over the country see these uh, these patients that have this condition and don't really know what to do with it. Well, if they have that that dry, if they have that sensation, it really is a good opportunity. And I would say communication is the key. Uh, you know, when it comes to mechanical dry eye, uh, I could probably. Uh, start a uh, start a sentence and you would finish it and, and vice versa and mm -hmm. i think being on that same page with the referring optometrist uh, is important but now when we take a look and we have those days with the uh, conjunctival restoration procedures uh, they're significant as far as practice building and we really can see at this point and that's really the stage we're at before uh, COVID-19 is to really start expanding that to our referring network and get each individual trained from the standpoint of recognition, doing the testing, and uh, what steps take forward uh, before that referral. And then I then I think that really that uh, really a tremendous opportunity for a practice. Right. Yeah. Identify the factors that are going to warrant surgery and be in agreement with your co-managing optometrists and that way when they come you're as a surgeon i feel like i'm more just validating the things they've been told and make sure i agree that this would be a good next step for them and like you said doug once we've been doing it long enough i think by the time i go over there i'm basically just validating what's already been told them and patients feel good about that and we've had we've had good response yeah, and it really it's it's validating what I've said. It's agreeing, and then and then you it's then it's between surgeon and patient. Would you like to move forward with this procedure? 
and you repeat that it's a simple outpatient procedure uh, with very good outcome. And really, when when you uh, when you take a look at those patients, and I've referred them over and have you take a look. Now it's easy in our clinic because you come right over. Uh, really, you're validating what I've already I've already explained to the patient and what what steps we've gone through. And we've been working together long enough that that we are able to do that. And I think that's the key to the co-management is make sure that the referring optometrist that is evaluating those patients going through the various steps uh, so that when they make a referral to you, you're going to really validate what they've said. And then that discussion is gonna be between the surgeon and the patient, whether or not they wanna proceed with having the procedure. I agree. Well, we appreciate uh, you listening in on the uh, on the podcast today, and there is so much opportunity. And my suggestion would really be, you know, working close. Uh, coordination uh, with surgeons that are interested in doing this conjunctival uh, restoration procedure and set up the hallmarks of which uh, what tests and what uh, treatment uh, should have been done prior to making that surgical recommendation. Uh, because what you want is really that what we talked about several times in this podcast is that you've identified this with a patient, you've tried treatment, you're now making this, but you wanna make sure that what you're seeing is in line with what the ophthalmologist and what the surgeon is going to feel is that, yes, I'm ready to pull a trigger based on the fact that this patient has had these treatments, uh, based on the fact that they've had this education and we see the presentation uh, with the calasis that is uh, you know, above the lid margin is actually uh, following some type of protocol that you both agree upon. And I think that's the biggest thing is just really coordinating because that's where we are right now. It works very, very well. I'm very confident when I make the referral. Uh, Dr. Manning is very confident when the referral is being made also. And that's why we said th that we're on that. And so that uh, that communication, that coordination is, uh, is so important to have a successful co-management of this restoration procedure using the, uh, you know, restoring the, the reservoir uh, on that patient and just restoring back to the uh, normal anatomy. So I, I appreciate everybody listening in on the podcast.